what came up glaringly was what tips people from I'm just stressed to I'm burned out is poor leadership. That was the tipping point. This is the Leadership 480 Podcast. Hey there, leaders, and welcome back to the Leadership 480 Podcast. And if any of you are feeling as wiped out as I am these days, then today's topic is for you. We're talking about burnout and how that affects leaders. Our guest today is Dr. Jerry Paleo, and she is an absolute expert on burnout. She has her own company, Change Management Solutions, and a PhD in management, specializing in organizational change and burnout. And she's got a great TEDx talk on burnout as well. In fact, I met Jerry when we were partnering with her to create a short course for leaders about burnout. We had such a great and engaging conversation. I figured I had to bring her on the podcast to talk to you all. So with great excitement, Jerry, welcome to the Leadership 480 podcast. Well, thank you, Beth. And I'll tell you, I hope I can live up to that intro. That was pretty fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I have no doubt. Uh, Um, Thank you. (laughs) So you've dedicated a lot of your life to study about burnout and have really researched this heavily. How did you get interested in workplace burnout? Well, I had done career coaching for many years at the start of my career, and I found that a lot of my clients were those high performers Mm -hmm. who were unhappy at work. So they were leaving sometimes not just to change jobs with a new employer in the same field, but they were changing careers altogether. And when I started, um, I got a master's in in HR, I started focusing on work-life balance because a lot of these these, uh, career coaching clients uh, whom I was working with were saying how uh, stressed they were and they didn't have a balance in their life. Well, when I started doing the research on work-life balance, this concept of burnout kept coming up. So then I did my MBA and I focused on leadership and surprise, surprise, I was focusing on leadership and uh, burnout. And then when I went on for the PhD, I focused specifically in um, burnout during transformational organizational change. And what I found interesting was when I was doing my lit review, there was no research out there on burnout and change management. And, you know, for about the past 20 years, change has become the new status quo. So organizational leaders have to know how to manage change or even better, how to lead change, which is a very different concept than than change management. And um, so I focused on burnout during organizational change. And what I realized once I developed my BDOC model, which is burnout during organizational change model, but BDOC is just a lot faster to say. (laughs) When I I started presenting that, and especially in my TEDx talk, I was getting funny looks from people and they were saying, that's what I've gone through. That's Mm. what I've gone through. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges for organizational leaders now is finding the right employees and then developing and retaining those employees. Because in my research, what I discovered was well over 90% of my participants left their employers, either for a new, a new employer or for a new career. So um, to me, workplace burnout is that dirty little secret. Everybody knows about it. Mostly everybody has suffered from it at some point. 
but it's not talked about. It's, as I said, it's mm -hmm. that dirty little secret. So that's how I got interested in workplace burnout because it, it was not a win-win for the um, employer or the employee. And if you want to talk about um, the clients, you know, if you've got a burned out organization and a burned out workforce, you're not going to be able to treat your clients well and you're going to miss opportunities. So I looked at this as, um, you know, it's it's something that's really important that I think is a stumbling block, block for many, many organizations. So I have a question for you. So one of the, when you're saying that people don't often don't talk about burnout, you know, that that makes some sense to me um, in, in the way that, you know, I don't think a lot of us know the difference between burnout and stress. You know, it's like everybody's stressed. Don't you know, nothing, nothing to cry about. We're all feeling stressed here. But how do you really recognize the difference between regular healthy stress and real burnout? If you can sleep it off in a weekend, you're not burned out. That's mm -hmm. just a physical or emotional exhaustion. Mm -hmm. Burnout is, it's more than just stress. In fact, I'm, I'm working on a new research project now based on gender differences in burnout. And I've started interviewing women. I'm going to be interviewing women first, followed by interviewing men and then doing compare and contrast. Mm -hmm. But what I found with um, a lot of these women almost across the board, they knew something was going on, but they ignored all the warning signs. And burnout, um, how can I explain this? It affects you psychologically, it affects you emotionally, and it affects you physically. Um, really frightening statistic I had in my first research was approximately 15% of my participants were diagnosed with cancer. Oh, after wow. their burnout experience. That was scary. That was very mm -hmm. scary. I, and, um, it, you know, there's been a lot of research done in the medical field about all of the um, chemicals that, that surge through your body when you're in a high stress state. And they're beginning to recognize how those chemicals it really create disease and malaise and chronic or acute uh, situations. Mm -hmm. So what I found is that it's usually when you start developing physical symptoms, that cold that you can't get over, which where that sounds like a minor thing in this era of COVID, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the cold you can't get rid of, um, skin conditions. If you have chronic sleep disturbances, where you either can't fall asleep or you're waking up every hour or you're uh, almost suffering from narcolepsy where you just like collapse at your desk and you fall asleep. Those are symptoms of burnout. Um, gastrointestinal problems, um, heart diseases. I interviewed one woman and she went for a routine eye exam and the um, ophthalmologist was looking in her eye and said, you need to see a doctor. And they set it up and it turns out she had like a 90% blockage. Oh my gosh. And they think a lot of it was, was stress related. Now, what's interesting with this is a lot of these symptoms are overlooked by many doctors in the US. The more progressive doctors are the ones who are recognizing the role that, that stress is playing on human health. But over in Europe, they've been looking into this connection for a much longer time. And that's 
that's hopeful and hopefully it comes into the United States. Another way to tell if you're burned out is real simple. You're really irritable. You're really cranky and you go home and kick the cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm a cat lover, so that's not a good thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's something that happens. I've had people talk about a spaciness that they're just not there. It's it's almost as if they're robotic and they're going through the motions, but they're just not there. And so it's it's a lot more than stress. Stress uh, can be energizing, as I'm sure you know, there's eustress, which is positive stress, and then there's distress, which is the negative stress. But the thing that's often overlooked is that the stressor that external situation that you believe is causing your stress is inherently neutral. So it's how you perceive it and how you define it that can help determine whether it you'll get a um, sense of positive stress, eustress, or whether you'll succumb to severe negative stress, distress, or burnout, or whether you're just going to say, yeah, it happens. So what doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. But if I can, I know I'm I'm talking a, a lot here, but this is part of the problem with burnout and why I believe it's the dirty little secret, because many people believe that burnout is a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Burnout is a sign that it's an individual's maladaptive response to stress. And guess what? You just can't cut it. Yeah. So I think it's why a lot of people don't talk about it. Um And even, this is the sad part, what I'm finding out in this new research, is even if they talk to their employers, the employers don't know what to do. They have no idea how to help the situation. They may feel bad about it, but they don't know how to help the individual. That's the good organizations. A lot of the other, what I would consider to be poor organizational cultures, those leaders basically say, deal with it. If you can't cut the job, we'll find somebody else. Mm-hmm. It just adds to that stress. But burnout can be a workplace burnout. Uh, Christina Maslock, who is like um, one of the pioneers in this field, said was one of the first to say, it's not just the individual. It Burnout is the canary in the coal mine. Because if you got a burned out workforce, you got something going wrong with the culture, with the leadership, with the policies, the practices or whatever. So I think it's that's also a reason why it's the dirty little secret. People don't want to pay the price that they uh, perceive they'll have to pay if they admit to feeling burned out. So let's talk then a little bit about um, what's going on in an organization that that leads to burnout. So. You know, people are feeling like this. They're feeling overwhelmed and terrible. And when you're saying, you know, it could, in some cases, it could be an individual that they have, you know, personal things going on in their life. But Mm -hmm. when it's the workplace culture that really creates it, what kinds of patterns have you seen about this is what organizations do that creates that burnout feeling? Well, it's interesting you should mention that because in in my original research, I was able to identify 10 organizational stressors that lead to employee burnout. Now, that's kind of unusual because most of the research out there is focusing on the individual and their perception of the stressor. 
But I can tell you this, you can be doing everything right to prevent burnout. I mean, you can be meditating, you can be exercising, you can be spending time with friends and you have a support network. But if the culture is so toxic, you're still going to fry. It might take a little bit longer, but you're still going to be frying. So what I found in terms of organizational stressors, and it's a top 10 list. Now, you have to realize with these stressors, I did a, a grounded theory methodology, which is qualitative research. So I did not give choices to my participants in terms of what was going on in the workplace that caused them to stress out. They brought these ideas up. Wow. One of the things that I think is interesting is most people think you're burned out because you're suffering from work overload, right? You just got too much on your plate. Well, that came up as number seven on the list. Wow. So it was near the bottom. What came up as number one is poor leadership. Poor leadership. And I think a lot of companies have never defined what good leadership is in their organization. So you may have these very autocratic leaders. You may have some who are engaged in participative management. You could have some that are more laissez-faire with a hands-off approach. But the company's never identified what good leadership means and then trains for that and develops them and also <clears throat> excuse me, removes people who are not practicing that. <clears throat> but, um, you know, the poor leadership is, well, you know this, Beth, a lot of times it's viewed as touchy-feely. Yep. You know, it's the old great man theory of leadership. Your leaders are born, they're not made. Either you've got it or you don't. You have to be charismatic, you know. And, um, but leadership can definitely be taught. And it's not touchy-feely. Even though managers tend to focus on the head and keeping uh, a certain amount of a status quo and focus on efficiency, leaders focus on the heart. They, they create change. They question things in order to be more effective. Now, the reason I bring this up that, that many times leadership is viewed as touchy-feely and you'll get some managers who say, I don't have time to really talk to my employees. Mm -hmm. I don't have time to, you know, I tell them what to do. They need to do it. We're all stressed out. But I recently completed a research project uh, with a gentleman by the name of Frank Angiolelli. And Frank is a cybersecurity expert. He's been in the field for a long time. So we conducted a research of cybersecurity professionals to really look at what their stressors are. And uh, because there's very high turnover in the um, CISO jobs, very high. I think the, the average tenure is only about 18 months and then they leave. So we were going through all of this. And it's a funny story because I'm a qualitative researcher and he's uh, Frank is more of a geek, let's face it. So he's quantitative. So he was sharing his screen and we're looking at the Excel spreadsheets. But I'm, I, I tend to be really good at, at spotting trends. So we're going through all this and, you know, they didn't mind the working 60 hours a week. They felt a passion for their job. But when they started talking about the stress and we did these pivot tables, what came up glaringly was what tips people from I'm just stressed to I'm burned out is poor leadership. Wow. That was the tipping point. 
And uh, it was so funny because, you know, we're, we're on the Zoom call and sharing screens and we're both just whooping and hollering like, oh, my God, that's what it is. It's the leadership. And I think now in particular with COVID, people are frightened. You know, they're either doing the ostrich with their head in the sand that this isn't real or it's I'm terrified to go out. And, you know, many people started working from home and sadly, many organizations were not set up and did not have a culture of trust that really supported working remotely and working more autonomously. And I think this is where leadership becomes critical. Business as usual is gone. We are not going back to the way things used to be. There's a new normal coming. And organizations have a unique opportunity to create that normal. And if they engage in participative management and they really communicate with two-way dialogue with their employees and engage them in the process, they can create a new normal for their workplace that will transcend everything they did in the past. But it's scary. Mm-hmm. But it's scary. So let's talk a little bit about leaders. I mean, I, you know, there's a, there's clearly a lot that leaders have control over for their teams and how to prevent burnout. And we, and I do want to talk about that too. But mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the experience for leaders themselves too, um, and how they experience burnout. So, um, you know, <laughs> for a lot of, you know, in, in a lot of our research with leaders and everything like that, it's um, these leaders are. They just don't know, you know, you're doing the best that you can. And then there's the additional burden of your own stress, but also the stress of your entire team. So I was curious if uh, leaders experience burnout differently than others do, um, or whether it seems to be more common in your research. Well, that's interesting because um, in my original research, I wanted to know how long it took before someone burned out. And so I, di- I divided my participants into the change leaders who had some degree of control over what the changes would be and how it would be implemented versus the change targets that were basically told, this is what's going to change and this is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. The change targets. Now, this was not based on job title because I had some managers that were really change targets because- yeah. Senior leadership, you know, just uh, put down the edict that this is what you have to do. Change targets burned out in, you ready for this? Six months. Oh, my gosh. Six. That's not long. (laughs) It's not long at all. The change leaders tended to take one to two years to burn out. And I think it's because they, they felt that they had more control over that situation. Um, The other thing I'm finding with some of this new research, uh, and mind you, I've just been interviewing the women at this point, is that women almost have a split personality at work when they're in a leadership role. Mm -hmm. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Nearly unanimously, the women stated that they had to wear armor, a, a coat of armor, when they were working with their superiors. They had to. Wow. Because that was the only way that they could fit in, cope, etc. However, when they had a team to manage, that's where the nurturing qualities came out. And many of these w- women would throw themselves on their swords 
to to prevent their teams from realizing what's really going on and potentially burning out. Hmm. So there there was that, um, you know, you want a leader who's going to really care about their team. In fact, uh, a lack of uh, perceived organizational caring was number two on that top 10 list of, of workplace stressors. But it kind of creates a schism for these women. And uh, some of them experienced a great deal of guilt when they ended up leaving the companies because they felt that their teams were, you know, thrown to the wolves at that at that point. Um, I, in terms of other ways that um, managers burn out differently than their employees, I think that a lot of people in managerial or organizational leadership roles define and identify themselves from their jobs. Mm. So they're, they're, there's, um, they're, they're very ingrained and enmeshed with their job and how they're performing. And think about it, if it's taking longer for them to get things done because they're stressed out, if they feel a little bit spacey, if they lose creativity and problem solving abilities, that is going to upset them um, intensely because yeah. that's not who they are. I do. I am not saying that line workers or people in non-managerial positions don't care as much, but it appears that they a job is is put more into perspective for them, that they, they don't keep their whole identity wrapped up in their jobs, and um, it's it, right now. You know, I, I need to be researching this a little bit more, but that does seem to be a pattern. And, you know, and the sad part is, is when the leaders start burning out, um, people are smart. So their peers and their subordinates know something is wrong, but there's a great deal of denial and burnout, a great deal yeah. of denial. And, um, and as I said, a lot of times they don't even see it. Wow. And I think, you know, that's, that really is, resonates i think for a lot of leaders out there who are who are really trying and you know we see it all the time too it's it's high achievers who are often yeah. are in leadership roles um and and are really and really struggle then when when things start to become much more difficult to handle that's that's a real challenge well um, I, i'd love yeah. to throw something out to that because mm -hmm. i was you know i've started this this research i've been interviewing for a few months now um on women in burnout and nearly across the board, they identify themselves as two things. Overachievers, not a high achiever. A high achiever knows when there's when it's excellent. An overachiever is striving for something beyond excellent. A um, little bit of perfectionism and goes with that. But in addition to self-identifying as an overachiever, they also admitted they were people pleasers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be overachiever and perfectionist, that that was going to be the, the you know, the, the, um, the mix. But it's overachievers and people pleasers. Now, what I haven't figured out yet, um, and it's going to take a little bit of time to uh, reach the point of saturation with this research where I can definitively uh, identify it, but I'm not sure if it's a people pleasing overachiever or an overachieving people pleaser. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure, but I think that depending on what your your base motivation is, 
I think that might impact not only what contributes to your burnout, but how you experience the burnout and how you recover from it. Yeah, I, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, you know, and we frequently see in our research with, you know, we do leadership assessments as well. And we often see that, you know, the reasons people were promoted are not necessarily always because of their great leadership skills, but often because of those two things. They're overachievers, so they got results and they get promoted or that they are well-connected people like them, the likability factor. So if you're not, not challenging, you're likable, you get promoted for those reasons. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, you mentioned recovery and I had, you know, I had watched um, your your TED talk mm -hmm. about uh, about burnout and, and you had related it to PTSD as well and talked yeah. a little bit about recovery and you had, you had mentioned residual burnout that can yeah. last a long time. Can you Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, residual burnout was one of the interesting findings in my preliminary research. Basically, residual burnout is a boomerang effect. Now, if you think about what's going on in the modern workplace, HR professionals and leaders are screaming that my employees aren't engaged, my employees aren't committed, they don't seem to care, how do I motivate them? Well, the BDOC... Um, model, and I think I had mentioned to you, I have a white paper on this yep. VDOC model. If any of your listeners would like it, we can uh, include the yep. link. Um, it's basically a reverse bell curve. So I found that most people before they burn out, they have high hope. They really care. These are the people that organizations want. You know, they're, they're willing to put forth the effort, they're energetic, they're passionate, all that kind of stuff. But then, depending on what's going on in the organization or those 10 workplace stressors, they start deteriorating into first frustration, then they get into anger, then they're apathetic, that they just don't care anymore. And I believe the apathy is a self-protective me mechanism. Mm -hmm. Then they go into this full-blown burnout where there's uh, psychological, emotional, mental health, um, uh, I don't want to say issues, but they're not who they were before. Also, there's the physical stuff. Once you get down to the the, the bottom of, of this inverted bell curve with burnout, then the recovery process is through psychological or physical separation from the stressor. As I said, over 90% of them left their jobs or changed careers. So many times it's either voluntary or involuntary termination. It can also be escapist practices into what are called false cures, alcoholism. Um, I was reading some articles that the amount of alcohol sales have increased substantially since COVID hit. And it's 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 often a, a very poor choice for um, recovery. And then mm -hmm. after that, there's a period of self-reflection and self-acceptance. And after you get through that, then you go into recovery. Now, on this inverted bell curve, the recovery of a revised psychological contract with work, which is nothing more than this is what I'm going to give to work and this is what I expect in return. That revised psychological contract or recovery is at a lower level than the feelings of hope that they had before. Oh, wow. Now, during the recovery, and this is what's scary, what I found in the initial research was it takes about 
two years to recover from a burnout. Two years. And during that time, when you're going through the recovery, but you haven't made it to the full recovery yet, things can happen at work that can literally trigger you the way certain experiences trigger someone suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And when these things are triggered, the, re the residual burnout is that boomerang effect that can take that person directly into burnout all over again, or any of the three preliminary stages, uh, frustration, anger, and apathy, leading up to that burnout. And this is something that's, that's really um, difficult to deal with. Um, I was, in some of my current interviews, I have women who burned out five years ago and they still don't feel like they've recovered. Wow. And think what it's, what's doing in an organization. Someone is not acting the way they used to, but the leader or their boss or manager, I don't know what to do to help them. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. And there you get into that trust factor. You know, does the leader have a trusting relationship with the individual so that they can help him or her move through the recovery process so that they do experience a um, revised psychological contract with work? And then, of course, you have to make sure that the company is going to be aligned with what that individual wants. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious, Jerry, you know, sure. you've talked about how much people you know don't talk about this yeah um and you know the more you're, you're talking about it it's, it's it's clear just how serious burnout is i mean mm -hmm. taking two two to five years to recover um you know hopefully we're all better now by 2022 2023 yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but god willing <laughs> um you know i'm curious how, how frequent do you think burnout is really happening so you know when you're saying a lot of people aren't talking about it, do they feel like this is this is just me? This is happening to? Yeah. Do you see this happening? You know, largely throughout organizations or many people in pockets of organizations. Just how common are, does it feel like this is? Honestly, I think it's an epidemic. Wow. I think it's an epidemic. Um, as I said, Europe has been much more progressive. If you burn out. Um, many European nations offer um, rehabilitation, uh, paid leave, uh, things to help the individual recover. Um, if you're familiar with uh, Japanese workplaces, there mm -hmm. is a concept called karoshi, mm -hmm. which literally means death by overwork. And the you know if if someone in the U.S. has a heart attack at their desk, you say that's such a shame that he had a heart attack. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you have a heart attack at your desk in Japan, they look at how many hours you were working, and what they discovered is if you work an additional eighty hours per month. Now consider forty-hour work week, average mm -hmm. of four weeks per month. That's a sixty-hour work week. And that's common for a lot of people. Yeah. In fact, there's some people out there doing 70 and 80 hours a week. Mm -hmm. But if you're working that kind of overtime and you have a heart attack and die at your desk, in Japan, it's listed as Kiroshi. So 
I think it's an it's an epidemic. I think that what's going on now with the pandemic, because we're still in the midst of it as we're recording this uh, this podcast, a lot of people are questioning. And I think the good thing is that it's going to change things. We are going to be creating a new normal. We're going to have to, because we're not going back to business as usual. And um, hopefully the U.S. will get on board and be progressive to stop um, this rise of, of workplace burnout and take it seriously. I mean, you know, think about it. If you have all these health problems and cardiac events or cancer or gastrointestinal problems or, you know, any other type of a malaise, look at what it's doing to your health insurance premiums and Mm -hmm. your utilization rate. I mean, there is, there are financial repercussions of a burned out work workforce. But a lot of times it's, it's one of those intangible soft things that can be very difficult to correlate. I mean, we can't, you know, causal factors versus uh, something that is a a correlation. There's a big difference between the two. Yeah. And yeah, but I, I think it's extremely widespread. And the problem is if you've got burned out senior leaders, remember, they have to walk the talk and they're role models. So whatever they're doing, for employees who want to succeed, they're going to emulate those behaviors. Yeah. So if you're if you're if you're a senior leader working 70 hours a week, yep. that's gonna be, you know, your direct reports assume that they need to work 70 hours a week. Yeah. And 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 so on down the chain. And you know what's a, what's a shame is that um, workaholism is, believe it or not, a false cure for burnout. Because mm-hmm. cognitively you're impaired, you, you can't get things done as quickly. The quality isn't as good. So what do you do? Put in more hours, work mm-hmm. harder, then get more frustrated when the results aren't any better. So it's just self-perpetuating. So I'm going to wrap us up with, with sure. two questions around what we're going to do, <laughs> the positive side of what we do sure. from here. Um, so the first part of it is, what do you do for yourself if you feel like if you start to sense some of those things feel like burning out you're burning out you're you're starting to have those sleepless nights it's constant what do you start to do for yourself if you feel burnout coming on well first thing you can do is stress out when you can't fall asleep <laughs> and, and hey we've all done it right wake up in the yep. middle of the night i'm going to sleep i'm going to sleep i'm relaxing i'm counting sheep it's not working um i have five other- hours left to wake up i have four hours left to wake up three hours left to wake up that's it, uh, maybe that's just me but <laughs> well no it no it's true and and that's what a lot of people are saying you know uh i call it the witching hour because it seems that when people start waking up in the middle of the night it's around two or three o'clock in the morning yeah. I'm not sure what's going on. I think there's something that has to do with with biorhythms, but it's around two or three o'clock in the morning. And you know you're burned out when you say, you know, maybe I should just get up. I mean, it's three o'clock in the morning. I don't have to be at work until 8.30. But gee, if I get up now, I can get more work done. Mm-hmm. Or if you're working from home, gee, I can go online. So one of the things that an organization can do, or if the organization won't do it, then put this boundary up yourself is no emails after a certain time at night. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. 
Um, simple, but not necessarily easy. Um, the other thing that people can do is I'm a big believer in meditation and mindful practices. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be challenging depending on what's going on in your life, especially if you have other personal um, relationships or situations that are also stressful. Uh, meditation can work even if it's like five minutes. Uh, Because I think what it allows you to do is to observe what's going on in your mind and what's going on in your thought processes. Um, Buddhist teaching talks about monkey mind, where your thoughts are just all over the place. And we've all had that. You know, it's just like I'm thinking about this and I should do this at work. And, oh, what's going to happen for dinner? And, oh, my kid has to go here and blah, 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 blah. Meditation, because you can observe that and just let it go, is important. Also exercise and these, but these are, you know, everybody knows this stuff, right? Exercise releases endorphins. It feels better. But what I'm finding in this current research that I I think is going to be, I don't know, a little bit groundbreaking is I'm finding that the people who have recovered went on two different tracks. They either went into the meditation and self-reflection to start it off. And once they got to a certain point, then they started taking better care physically uh, with the exercise, eating better, things like that. The other group did the exact opposite. To sit under under a a tree and and meditate and say, oh, was just too much, they couldn't do it. For them, the exercise was much better. It got the endorphins. Then when they got to a certain point, then they could go more into the self-reflection and and the quietness. But what I'm hearing is the most important thing for recovering from burnout is to recognize that you can and you do have the right to create boundaries. Mm. People who burn out seem to not have any boundaries. No is a dirty word. You're not allowed to say no. Just, you know, I feel good because I'm a busy person. If you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. Right. But then they get overwhelmed with it. Mm -hmm. Being able to have those kind of boundaries, being able to say no, no, I can't do that. Um, That seems to be probably one of the most important things. I wish I could have a silver bullet that I could tell everybody out there, if you just do this, you're not going to burn out. But I don't think it exists because each one of us is unique. We've had different experiences. We have different relationships. I mean, for example, having a strong support network seems to be really, really helpful in limiting how severe the burnout is and also helping the individual to recover from it and avoid residual burnout. But what if you don't have a good support network? If someone's telling you, go find a good support network, you're just going to beat yourself up because Mm -hmm. you don't have that. So this is where I think the self-awareness that comes from self-reflection and self-acceptance. None of us is perfect. We all have stuff that that goes on in our life. We've all done things we're not exactly proud of. But instead of beating yourself up with that, accepting it. Because I firmly believe that each one of us has 
a very unique gift to give. And this is not artsy fartsy stuff. This is just, <laughs> I mean, it's true. And, but what do we, what do many companies do? We're going to focus on your weaknesses to make you better. Well, that can be fine, but wouldn't it be better to focus and enhance somebody's strengths? And especially if it's something they enjoy doing. I think that's another thing is finding out what you enjoy. Finding out where work fits in your life. Is it your calling and it's your passion? Well, that gets into Maslow's hierarchy. If you're self-actualizing, you can kind of let go of the lower level needs and not suffer any uh, deleterious effects. Or is work basically a way to fund your lifestyle? That's perfectly fine too. But it's that self-knowledge and then finding opportunities that are aligned with that. It's going to take some work. It's going to be kind of scary, but it's all going back to knowing who you are and what type of an environment you excel in. Jerry, that is so helpful. I mean, you've made me feel better in this conversation. Good. I hope the, <laughs> the listeners too, but I feel a lot better. Um, you know, oh, one of the things you can do, one of the things you can do, watch a funny movie. <laughs> now, no, you know what's crazy about this is when you're burned out, you lose your sense of humor or your humor becomes very snarky, snarky and sarcastic. Oh, but I'm but, good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I do like snarky humor, <laughs> even though I'm not burned out. But but you'll notice when you get really, really stressed, it gets much more biting, you know. And so being, if you can laugh, think about what happens when you laugh, you have to let go. You, you know, if you can't see something funny and go, oh, ho, 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 you know, that <laughs> it just doesn't work. But when you laugh, you, you let go and release. In fact, there is something called laughing yoga where it's a class and you learn how to laugh and, you know, you're breathing deeper. You've got, um, uh, diaphragmatic support. You're breathing from your diaphragm, but you can let go and you can release it. And that I think is also part of the thing with burnout is letting go and having better acceptance and knowing that whatever happens, you'll be able to deal with it. Yeah. And you have a choice. You have a choice. So for our leaders, I'm really glad we we're doing this in this order because I think it's important to take care of yourself first, right? They always say, put your yep. own oxygen mask on first before you can help others. But then as we wrap up, part two of that question is then what yep. do leaders do to avoid creating a culture that's conducive to burnout? How do they protect their teams from, you know, make sure they're recognizing it on their teams and making sure that it's not happening on their team? Well, the first thing is, is to be authentic and open and vulnerable because that's how you're going to build trust. Do what you say you're going to do. Don't make excuses. Um, it, it goes back to the 10 workplace stressors that if you flip them, it tells you how organizations can avoid burnout and build resiliency. Um, leaders need to have a vision or direction, and they need to be able to articulate that vision. The problem is many organizations develop a vision by taking their senior leaders off-site, and they talk about what the company is going to do, and then they come back and say, hey, guess what we're going to do now? Mm -hmm. Participative management, where you ask your employees, what do you think would help? Employees have great ideas if you just ask them. And yeah. then, you know, act upon the ones that are aligned with your business model. Uh, participative management is much better to build vision and you're going to get better buy-in. 
Because if I believe that my idea was listened to and it was incorporated in the strategy, I'm much more likely to um, commit to it and not resist. Uh, secondly, if you see any unethical or illegal things going on in the workplace, you need to have a zero tolerance for ethical violations. Um, far too often, employees see someone who is kissing up or is doing things that aren't on the up and up, and guess what? That person's getting promoted. You have to have a zero tolerance. And a, a code of ethics is not just something that we checked off a list. A code of ethics is something to live by. Um, the next thing, communication is not one way. Sending something out in an e-newsletter is not communicating with employees. Communication is a two-way dialogue. And aggressive listening is important. In fact, the best leaders know how to listen, and then they ask smart questions. I had taught in um, undergrad and graduate programs for many years. And I could tell if a student understood what I was teaching based on their questions. Do the same thing at work. Listen and ask questions. The other thing is uh, watch workloads. If you see someone who's consistently working 60 hours or more, and I know that, that budgets can be tight, look at how you can streamline the process and the operations. There's way too much redundancy in processes and organizations. And if you see someone who's always working 60 hours a week or who who's logging in at two in the morning, um, you need to help them gain control over their schedule and to put some boundaries in, you know, mm -hmm. and, and to help them and ask them for what they need. Um, the other thing is don't overemphasize return on investment, that everything comes down to a financial metric. Uh, that's the problem with HR because a lot of what is done in HR and a lot of the ways to measure leadership are, are kind of soft numbers. It's where the idea of a balanced scorecard comes into place. If you keep focusing on just bottom line, bottom line, employees believe that you don't care about them. You know, it's the idea of if, if, if Tom uh, kills over dead on the assembly line, move the dead body, put Bob in his place, and everything just keeps on going. Mm -hmm. Employees will not give their best if they don't believe you care about them. Uh, the other thing is lack of resources. I know budgets are tight, but be honest with employees. You can't say we can't afford to bring someone else on board and then give a six-figure bonus to, your, to somebody in, in the C-suite. It, mm. it just... Employees get very frustrated um, by that. So ask, again, there's that communication, and strive to provide what the employees really believe they need to do their job well. Um, also, watch the politics and the sabotage. Um, if you really want to know what's going on uh, and you're a leader, ask, ask the uh, co-workers of certain employees what they're really like. Uh, you, you know, it's the old adage when we were in the workplace that... Um, Beth comes in at six o'clock in the morning and she doesn't leave until 10 o'clock at night, which the, which uh, senior leaders think that Beth is a great employee because look how committed she is. But Beth's colleagues know that she takes a nap in the afternoon and she takes mm -hmm. a nap in the morning. So you need to uh, really strive um, that politics and sabotage are not part of the process for promotions or for um any type of new processes. Uh, you're going for honesty, fairness, and equitable treatment for all. 
Um, the other thing is sometimes if it has been a, a, a poor culture, you're going to have negative coworkers. And it's the old Hawthorne effect that, you know, someone comes in and they're all excited and we're going to make this great. And all of the old employees go, mm-hmm, yeah, go ahead and do that. I'm not going to do it. So you have to look at that, but it takes more than just let's go out and have pizza for lunch. <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot of companies do that. You know, mm -hmm. um, I remember there was one company I heard of that really was hyping up that they were going to give all the employees a present to because they really appreciate what they did. You want to know what the present was? A branded keychain. Oh, I was afraid to ask. Oh, gosh. Yeah, a branded and the employees, I mean, it totally backfired because they were like, this is what you think of us. Yeah. So, you know, the goal is to be collaborative and have positive teams and also to, un, you know, to be very specific what you're expecting. You know, what does good teamwork look like? And that can be difficult. And, you know, the bit with the keychain, it, it showed a lack of organizational caring. So you have to provide tangible proof for your employees about the fact that you do care and you are going to support them. Talk's cheap. Actions speak a lot louder than words. What are you doing? Not what you said. If you want to know somebody's priority, look at what they do, not what they say. And then finally, identify what good leadership means in your organization. And I would advocate more of a servant leadership uh, that builds trust and autonomy. We're all adults in the workplace. You know, it's not this autocratic, I tell you jump to jump and you say how high, especially with everything that's going on and the, the move to the new normal, you need collaboration, you need autonomy, you need trust, because that's how organizations are not only going to get through this, but it's also one of the, one of the best ways to avoid burnout. Jerry, this conversation was so helpful today. Um, oh, and I think for a lot of our leaders out there, um, they will have appreciated your words so much. I think there was a lot to learn here about setting boundaries for yourself as a leader, making sure you are then equipped to support your team um, and how important that is because the effects of burnout can really be, stay with us a long time. Um, so it's more important to address it now than, than to let it go too long. So thank you for joining us, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. And thank you to all of our listeners for spending part of your 480 with us today. This is Beth Alms reminding you to make every moment of leadership count.